You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Talking About Podcast. I am your host, as always, Daniel Olinger, joined by my man, Sean Kennedy. Sean, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Daniel. We got uh, at least one more game left in the NBA season with uh, Game 5 set to tip off. Uh, I guess this will be up on Friday, so it'll be tonight for the people listening. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, got a, we got a head coach, so that's exciting. Officially, Doc Rivers, new head coach of the Philadelphia 76ers. And uh, I, I can't say I'm thrilled that the front office is exactly the same. But, you know, it's a it's a new era. And I'm excited to see what uh, Doc brings to the table. Yeah, we did last week's pod talking all about Doc Rivers, which turned out to be great timing. So we spent the whole time. We didn't know he was going to be the coach while recording. Then literally like seven hours after we finished recording, it was announced he was going to be the coach. So that went straight up. So, again, if you want any of our, we have, we'll definitely talk, we're going to talk more about Doc Rivers in this, this mailbag episode of our podcast today, but if you want, like, a full in-depth, like, thoughts on Doc Rivers, you can go check out our episode from last week, and I know you, you are rightfully to be ups, a little upset that there hasn't been any uh, front office changes yet, though there was a report, I believe, from your, your own Weitzman the other day that the Sixers are looking at bringing in, like, a new kind of like some a new voice to the front office to be like an assistant under Elton Brand. You saw that, Sean? I did. Yeah, my concern with that is anyone who's a really great candidate, why would they come in to be under Elton and, and just be another voice in the wilderness of this collaborative front office situation? So, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure that it's still possible they bring in somebody very good and knowledgeable who can help and they should but yeah i'm I'm not letting myself get carried away with oh that'll really change things because unless they get rid of you know the three to four guys that are still holdovers from the calangelo regime regime then what are they really doing here (laughs) i bet it's like a plot twist and we hear next week billy king is now assistant gm of the sixers (laughs) <laughs> he's back <laughs> he's back <laughs> oh, the return God. it's 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 the second greatest return after lebron in nba history <laughs> oh man uh speaking of lebron he's gonna win his it's just it's so weird lebron's about to win his fourth title and when i just think about watching these finals it's been the longest season in nba history and man remember when we like most of us thought the sixers were going to be playing in the finals like a year ago today yeah, remember Bucks Sixers clear top tier in the Eastern Conference. Oh, clear, it, it wasn't even close. You couldn't find anyone with a different conference finals prediction than Bucks Sixers. Like, I'm pretty sure the 
the odds on like favorite finals matchups was Sixers Clippers, which again shows you as much as people complain about the NBA doesn't have enough parity. It's a league where the best teams win every year. Like, I mean, the best teams usually win in each sport, but like, you know, dominant teams win all the time. Like, there's really not that many cases of, like, a team like the Warriors where it's, like, it feels like it's inevitable. They're just going to take everyone down. Even from LeBron getting to the finals year after year, like, LeBron has a losing record in the finals, which isn't any mark against him, really. But it's more like, yeah, there's it's still really hard to win a title, which makes it unpredictable from year to year. And clearly, like, all of us who thought Sixers Clippers, like, were wrong. I, I flipped my prediction throughout the season all the time. Like, I've and going into the playoffs, I picked the Bucks to win. But I will mention, way back from my blog, Back to the Basket on WordPress, uh, through WordPress, um, I did pick Lakers over Sixers in my season preview all the way back there. So I, I can kind of, like, hold on to that in some way. Yeah, just, you don't even have to mention the Sixers part. Just say that you yeah. had the Lakers winning it all. So yeah, it's all like the the less the better is what they might say. Yeah, you don't you don't need to overload people with information. Just just give them the important stuff. Well, we do have some important stuff to get to today. Mainly, we have reached out to some of you and thank you thank you to everyone who responded for some mailbag questions to address on this podcast. We're gonna get started right away with our friend Dave Early, also a great writer here at Liberty Ballers who asked us, who are the likeliest young guys on the team to get traded, and what role does it leave for the ones who are kept? So I think the first thing I do here is address who are the young guys on the team. And I'm guessing when he says that, he doesn't mean Ben or Joel because they're like, I mean, they, while they are young guys, like we know we're not really trading them, basically. Like, Would you agree with that? Yeah, I don't think they're, they're kind of a separate category. Mm-hmm. Um Al Horford is one month younger than me, so can he be wow. a young guy? I mean, it all depends on how you feel, Sean. Do you feel young? <laughs> I, I, you know, I guess it depends on the day. Some days, <laughs> you know, I wake up feeling really good and spry, and other days it's, uh, it's a real struggle to get out of bed after, you know, a long day of hiking or something, and <laughs> suddenly every muscle in my body doesn't want to work. Um, but, yeah, no, uh, so I, I think we can kind of limit it to Shake, Matisse, Zaire, Furkan. Yeah, Furkan was the other one I was going to say. Yeah, so I, I, I think that I, that'd be the young. I, I mean, I don't, I don't know I, if we I think really consider th- like Norvell. Yeah, or I think you could throw Norvell. Shayok. I think you could throw Norvell. In there. Now the thing is, they're not going to like Norvell. Wouldn't get you anything more than a second round pick. But. If that, yeah. So I, I think the the four guys we mentioned at the top are are who we would concentrate on in this ca- in this category. Well, I would also say those four young guys plus the twenty first pick in this draft, whoever it ends up being, because that will most likely be one of the young guys going forward if they keep it. You know what I'm saying? Like treating that as like a young guy because it's an asset and a young sure. good player you're getting. But so I would probably. I'm yeah. I guess if you want to include that, we can we can talk about that. Mm-hmm. So. Obviously, like, the top two that everyone thinks of with young guys in the Sixers, it's Matisse and Shake because they had the biggest roles on the team, basically, in the most important parts of the season. And just kind of off the bat, like, I was trying to think who has more value, who... Because we know that there's, like, rumors the Sixers want to make trades, mainly to try and get off of Al Horford's contract. And, it like, as part of a tax to get off that contract, you might have to attach an asset like Matisse or Shake. Like, who do you think they value more between those two? 
just between those two, it's it's interesting because Doc specifically went out of his men- his way to mention both guys in his introductory pre- press conference. He uh, he talked about Shake and said that if he does what he did against the Clippers last year, then he won't have to say another word to him. <laughs> uh, so obviously he got a he got a front row seat for Shake Milton's best professional game, and then uh, he he mentioned Matisse and talked about his all defensive team ceiling. And I think we all have have seen him flash that at various points, and we we all believe that he has that potential. Um, so I, I guess they would value Matisse higher just because in his role as a you know like third or fourth guy potentially down the road when you already have Ben and Joel to carry the heavy lifting with the ball in their hands, he presents a more valuable fit as a guy who can be a shutdown defender on the perimeter, which every team needs now that, you know, everything offensively involves stopping the pick and roll and Matisse's projects to be a guy that can really help you in that area. Mm. And then he can, all, all he really has to do down the road is just be able to knock down spot up threes off the kick out or off an open swing to him. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that, you know, we we hope he can do. Uh, and I think it's was more encouraging than not his ability to shoot in his rookie season after that had been one of the big concerns as a draft prospect for him. So I, I think that would lend itself to being a more valuable fit down the road. Whereas Shake, his primary skill, I would say, would just be the ability to create and that is something that's obviously very valuable and the Sixers need more of that. And they'll be looking for shake to do a lot of that, but ideally he he projects as like a secondary creator. I don't see him ever being the primary option on offense. And with the Sixers already, you know, with the, the roster they already have, if they're going to succeed, it's going to be with their stars doing, filling that role. So shakes less valuable in that sense. Um, Mm -hmm. So I, I would, think he would be, be more likely to be moved than Matisse if we were only limiting it to those two guys. So here's kind of like my thought process behind the whole thing. I think to other teams in the league, Matisse has more value. He is, they look at his defensive potential, just all that length, all that athleticism and think, man, what could we do with him? So he would net you more like capital in a trade. Shake might have more value to the Sixers just because and I, like this is me just kind of thinking it through. I'm not entirely sure. Like I haven't made a definitive like conclusion on this, but just because the Sixers have so few guys who can both dribble and shoot, and the fact that Shake can kind of do both of those things, and he, given he could probably get better at both, but he can do both things. That means so much to that team. Whereas it's a team that's already tall and has a lot of length, so maybe like we saw Matisse is great, but like. Matisse isn't at the point now for a, this team where he can, like, shut down Jason Tatum or other stars like that. So that's maybe one thought. I do think, though, even if Shake might have more value to the team, I don't think the front office would see it that way, especially because you have to think about it like they're maybe not thinking about it of who is better, but who did we have to give up more for in terms of... they They got Shake with one of the last picks in the draft. It's basically like a total swing and hit for them. Like, 
we just got this guy. What a great value for us that we got something out of one of the last picks in the draft. Yeah, he's found money for them. Whereas Matisse is like, they telegraphed their interest to the Celtics, gave up a really good second-round pick to get him, and it basically touted him all year. So, like, the front office thinking, oh, Matisse has been our guy for so long. We need to keep Matisse. We gave up. We gave up an extra pick because we wanted Matisse that bad. So, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm just thinking the front office is probably thinking we gotta, we don't want to give up on Matisse because we gave a lot from Matisse. It's almost like they don't want to repeat the mistake of drafting Landry Shamit than throwing him in a bad trade. For sure, there's definitely a sense of sunk cost fallacy associated with that. That's like if, the, that's like the fifth time in a row we've mentioned sunk cost fallacy when coming to the, uh, on our podcast it's maybe that that'll be the name of the next podcast it will be it's it's yeah. the, we have like a part a good, run a good running bit for our podcast is us just fig, figuring out that we could have had other names for our podcast that I, I think i mentioned the anti-sixers sixers show at some point yeah we we have more names than episodes i think at this point <laughs> in our young podcasting career together um yeah no that uh, but uh I definitely agree agree with what you kind of laid out there. And if we're just looking at it purely as who is more likely to be traded, which I guess it was the question versus who is better for the team to keep, then yeah, Shake also would fit that criteria that you laid out. Um, yeah, I, I guess my thinking is Shake does help. The Sixers need Shake's skill set more than other teams do. But if they're still at the point where they need shake so badly because their top guys still aren't able to contribute in that way, then they're kind of screwed anyway, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Like they they need the stars to elevate their game and like, contribute more in that area. Like you're saying, otherwise, if shake if shake is the answer, then you're probably just not a title team. Yeah, that's exactly. Mm -hmm. So if you don't want to trade Shake because he is so critical to your offense that you can't it can't work without him, then just scrap everything entirely anyway. Um in my opinion. Not not to say that they should trade Shake. I'm like he's a great young asset to have and I'm excited to see what he can do for the team going forward if if he does remain with the team and I think he does still have room to grow and, you know, but, uh, and I think he'd be really valuable for them as a secondary creator if he's still here and, um, all, well, you know, all signs point to him staying. There hasn't been like rumors or anything that they're looking to move him. So, uh, just like in a hypothetical vacuum that we're kind of discussing here, those are my thoughts on it. Mm -hmm. And I, we didn't mention for Connor Zaire in terms of like yet, but, um, I, I don't think they would. I don't know how much you're going to get for... I think you could get something for Furcon, but I also think they're just... Considering the fact that he is a reliable shooter and that he's on now a, an incredibly cheap contract, they don't want to move him. They're perfectly fine just keeping him. And Zaire, like... I'm one of the guys who's lower on Zaire, generally. So I I might not be the best person to answer, but I would say that I, I don't think there's you're going to get anything more than like a... A, like 40s second rounder for Zaire like at this point in terms of, and I'm not even sure of that because like Zaire just I don't think many teams are that interested at this point because it's now been like if he was 
if he was good or not injury prone, you guys would have played him by this point, and he really hasn't played, so it's hard to do anything there. The 21st pick definitely has some, like, value. I mean, I generally, because I love the draft, I want us to keep our picks just so... Because I like, I love the feeling of, like, you get another guy. Like, I would love it if the Sixers drafted Kyra Lewis and I got to watch him play and see him develop. But, you know, I definitely, if they think there's a really good trade out there, they should go ahead for because they definitely need to fix something. Although, I would advise against just, like, just attaching an asset to get rid of Al Horford. Like, I don't just want to salary dump Al Horford if possible. If you can find a way to get actual, like, non, like, just... You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not a give up, like, sunk cost trade. Like, if you can just find a way to not just attach a valuable asset to a player who's clearly, like, who's signing hurt your team, I would prefer if you could maybe find a way to fix that first. For sure, yeah. Um, just in regard to Zaire, he, he was my answer if we're just talking about, like, who who is the likeliest to be traded. Oh, yeah. Just because any any trade involving one of the like bigger contracts or if the Sixers are trying to get back a player of significance to kind of help the team like Zaire has to be included for matching purposes salary matching purposes and Zaire being a guy that is a holdover from the temporary Brett Brown regime before Elton became the full-time GM uh Elton doesn't view him as his guy as much as he does Matisse obviously Mm -hmm. so if there's a trade it's likely going to include Zaire just for those reasons and so that like he's he's my answer for likeliest guy to be traded um but but I think our discussion earlier is more prevalent if we're just talking about like the impact players Mm -hmm. likeliest to be traded yeah, and in terms of, like, roles, if they get traded, I would just say for Matisse and Shake, say Shake was dealt, I would think Matisse just needs to become a, an even better spot-up shooter than just provide more spacing to the offense. And should Matisse get traded, Shake then really needs to... It can't just be Shake kind of being the secondary creator. He has to be that He has to be that guy. Like, he has to be good shooter on okay volume, plus can handle the ball when necessary. Like... Both of them would need to, like, Shake would need to really step into, like, not just a fun piece, but a, a real piece of the rotation. And Matisse would just need to start contributing on offense should either of them get traded. Yep. And uh, in an ideal world, neither of them get traded. And they both do both of those things. And they have, the Sixers have two valuable young players on their roster, which would be great. They. They need a lot of those. <laughs> Ideal worlds do not exist in Philadelphia, Sean. So, I mean, <laughs> wishful thinking there. Ideal things happen in Philadelphia. Isn't that, isn't that the saying? Or do I have that mixed up? I don't know. <laughs> uh, moving on to our next question from, our, again, another friend of ours at Liberty Ballers, Tom West. What is the main stylistic change on offense or defense you'd like to see Doc make? The first thing that came to mind for me, because obviously everyone wants to talk about the offense and how you can change it, but, like, again, while there definitely need to be some offensive changes made in terms of the way they play, it is, like, trying... It is... You're putting together a pretty hard puzzle. Like, the pieces do not fit great. On defense, that defense should have been better than 
I think it finished eighth this year about in like points allowed per 100. So I, I would emphasize protecting the rim over taking away three-point attempts. We I talked about that at length over, on this podcast, how the Sixers led the league in like frequency, smallest frequency of their opponents taking threes, but gave up a lot of shots at the rim. And the best defenses in the league, like the Raptors, Bucks, and Heat were like, maybe not, I don't know if the Heat were a great regular season defense, but especially the Bucks and the Raptors did a great job of just taking away shots at the rim, like use the length of Ben and Tobias to contest late threes, like Pascal Siakam does just running out of them instead of completely maybe running them off, getting behind the play and giving up layups off of that. So I would definitely like to see a change in that. Also like helping more off of bad shooters. The Sixers didn't do that enough. Basically just, I, w- I want to see an emphasis on the Sixers are a big team and we are going to protect the rim like crazy. All right, so I, I kind of thought you were going to go with offense. Um, <laughs> so I also, my answer kind of centered around the defensive strategy. And I, I want to harken back to Doc's Boston days when they played a lot of strong side overload mm-hmm. defense. And I just think that could be an interesting thing for the Sixers to try for kind of similar reasons to what you just laid out. Like, they're a big team. They have a lot of length. And that's something Doc even mentioned in his press conference is, like, hey, we're big. Like, you are you don't have to change that. You have to be the best at being what you are. Totally. So let's use that and – you know, make it difficult for opposing offenses who, if we play that strong side overload, they're going to beat that by the quick cross-court passes. And that becomes a lot more difficult when you have like three, six, ten guys on the floor or like six, eight and up if you're counting Tobias. And, you know, long arms and just you can include Matisse with his freakish wingspan and just getting in those passing lanes to make those cross court passes all the more difficult. And let's just see what they can do. Like they have a lot of athletic guys. Joel's a great defensive IQ player where he can kind of diagnose uh, breaking down either those passing lanes or getting in the right spot to limit people as they do drive to the basket. Um, kind of similar to, you know, what KG was able to do in his Boston days. And, uh, I just like the idea of being more aggressive defensively versus the laid back like uh, a strategy that they had previously where they just let people get walk into open 18 footers whenever they wanted. Um, well, I mean, I'm, I'm, not... a, I'm a little okay with like Joel trying to like bait guys into bad mid range shots generally. Cause he does a really good job at like kind of like, <laughs> like, knowing when to jump out at guys or stay back. Like, Joel, generally, in drop coverage on the pick-and-roll, does a really good job. Now, you do have to be willing to change that when you're playing a team like the Celtics, whose best skill, like, throughout their five best players is pull-up three-point shooting. Like, yeah, so, yeah. then you need to change that. But that's that's more like a specific, like, you need to make an adjustment scenario instead of, like, a team-wide system thing. But... So maybe I misspoke with just the 18-footer. Also, like, you know, walking into the threes. And just the fact that the Sixers didn't have a lot of variety in yeah, that variety. sense. Like, that that was their scheme, and they stuck to it no matter what. I'd like – like, we, we were watching the, the Boston-Toronto second-round series, mm-hmm. and it seemed like 
every and then you can include the heat as well like they play a lot of different stuff but it seemed like every time down the court they were throwing something different at the opposing offense to keep them guessing about how to attack the defense and uh like somebody asked Pascal Siakam, like how many defenses does Nick Nurse have? And he's like, I don't know. I've lost track at this point. Um, and it's just night and day when you compare that to what the Sixers were doing, where it's like they had one defense and Boston pretty quickly figured out how to beat it. And they just went to that well repeatedly. So, I mean, I guess in a broader sense, just a wider variety of schemes defensively is something I'm looking forward to Doc bringing to the table. I would definitely like to see Doc have that kind of adjustable many defenses mentality. Now, that is not who Doc has been in the past, per se. Like, him along with... Brett Brown was roasted for his lack of adjustments in these playoffs. So was Doc in the Nuggets series that the Clippers lost, where he refused to take out Montrez Harrell, despite all evidence showing that Evita Zubats was an infinitely better matchup for Nikola Jokic doing much better. But... I, I don't know. I mean, it's defensively, like, yeah, it's just, I would like to see, I, I like what you said about how if they're bigger, they should just use that, kind of embrace who they are. Like, it reminds me a little bit of what the Ravens did in the NFL with Lamar Jackson, where it wasn't, we need to teach Lamar how to drop back and sit in the pocket like a normal quarterback. It's, no, Lamar's really great at running and throwing on the run. Let's build our whole team around him because he's the superstar. Let's not force him to play in a system that makes him worse. So kind of like accentuating the strengths of protecting the rim of all our length and getting out at shooters at the last minute because we can contest him with all our long arms. I, I really like that idea. Um, and on offense, like just some things I was thinking about because, I mean, we've talked a lot about how Doc loves pick and rolls. He's has a good track record of Tobias Harris, gotten to play some of the best basketball of his career kind of getting Tobias in more pick-and-roll ball handler scenarios than having him just isolate, which he did a lot with the Sixers. I would also like to see, just based off what we've seen in these NBA playoffs, getting the ball to both Joel or Ben at the high post and having cutters run off of them, kind of getting some off-ball movement and using their gravity to try and open up some things for that. And Now, obviously, there are a little... It is hard to do that all the time just because... For both of them, Joel, while not a terrible passer, is not a great one, so he might not be great at finding those guys. And Ben, while an excellent passer, probably doesn't command as much attention from the defense when he catches it at the elbow just because they're going to back off a little. They know likely the jump shot isn't coming. But I would like to see some plays like that. I, I feel like Josh Richardson, he's great at that little baseline out-of-bounds cut where he just goes straight to the rim. He got a lot of points off of that this year. So maybe you could use him as a cutter pretty well. One change that I think will ha- could happen, even though I don't know if I want it to happen. Could- so if the team re-signs Alec Burks, part of me feels like he'll get a really big role for the team because Doc loves those like heat check ball handling guards who are just primarily scorers off the bench. He loves to put the ball in their hands, let them run the show for like ten and twelve minutes a game, and get their buckets. Like. Could you see that happening if this team brought back Alec Burks Doc giving him a big role as like the team's six man and bucket getter off the bench? Sure. I mean, that was essentially Burks's role last season. So I don't see why that would change drastically, um, unless somebody like Shake took a big step forward. And yeah, Doc definitely loves those types that type of guy, like Lou Will, uh, Jamal Crawford and you know, there was a few guys back in his Boston days too. Um, 
so yeah, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised. I, I'm very, I don't, I don't know whether I'd call it pessimistic because I don't know how I feel about it, but I, I really don't think Burks is going to be brought back. I think that he will get a pretty good size deal somewhere in the open market because he had a good season both in Philly and during his time in Golden State last year. So I don't expect that to happen. Um, but yeah, it's if he did come back, I don't see why his role would be too much different than what it was last season when he mm-hmm. was yeah, the six-man microwave option slash part of the closing five unit. Yeah, I could definitely see. And I know what you're saying about he's probably not going to come back. I mean, it's just hard to bring back a lot of guys to your team when you spent so much money on all these five players and they don't really fit well together. But With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Moving on to our next question. We've got one from my dad here. Huge shout out to him for helping me out with this. Uh, where where does Doc Rivers stand in your ranking of ex-NBA players post-Dolph Shays? who became Sixers head coaches. His listing would be one Billy Cunningham, two Mo Cheeks, three Doug Collins, four John Lucas, five Doc, six Fred Carter, seven Matt Gu- Is it Matty Gu- I can never say that last name. Matty Gukas? Or I can always mess that up. And then eight Johnny Davis. That's Get before it? my time. Even I know I know we're a little bit different generationally, but that's that's also before my time. So. Get, getting our getting our history tested out today. Um, I did bring up to him when he sent me this. I told him that uh, he forgot Doug Moe and Larry Brown. He said he didn't include them because they're in the ABA. But for those who don't know, Moe and Larry Brown both very good at ABA players, both multi-time All Stars. Uh, I believe they played together some. Doug Moe won a 1969 ABA title with the. Oakland, I want to say they're the Oakland Oaks at that time. The the one tricky thing about like naming ABA teams is they change their names like every two years. So it gets really hard to keep track of that. I will say Yeah, there's a there's a lot of financing issues with the ABA. Oh, yeah. So they were they were constantly uh looking for different marketing strategies and stuff. The one I do think the top of the list is pretty clear cut. Like I don't know how much you know about Billy Cunningham, but he, he, to me, is definitely, like, number one in terms of former player turned coach, like, how good Billy Cunningham was as a player. Yeah, I mean, him and Cheeks are obviously the top tier, you know, both Hall of Famers, and they're far and away the uh, the ones that should be at the top of this list as far as Sixers coaches uh, in regard to their former playing ability. Um yeah, we, we kind of laid this out. Doug Collins is a pretty easy number three for me. You know, he made four straight all-star teams. He averaged about between 18 and 20 points per game for about five years straight, which is, that's pretty tremendous when you really think about it. Um, I know we all kind of joke about Collins because of the way his tenure ended as a coach slash GM here in Sixers land in more recent history, but he was an outstanding player and deserves every prop for uh, what he did in his playing career. Um, Yeah, it's, 
it's then then it kind of gets interesting. I think uh, it's definitely between Doc and John Lucas for that that four spot. Um, if we're talking Cunningham cheeks, Doug Collins, and then uh, who would be at number four? Mm. Um, I did. It's, get, it's close. I I did one time. I can't remember when, but I think I saw the nineteen eighty eight game seven, like or maybe it was eighty seven. I can't remember which year, but either eighty seven or eighty eight. It was the Celtics-Hawks Game 7 where Bird and Dominique go at each other. And I feel like I remember Doc Rivers was pretty bad in that game. So it kind of made some uh, made me have a little bit of a lower opinion of him. And he also, I think, struggled. In, like, when the Jordan-Doc was going on, I was watching a lot of old Jordan games. And Doc, like, showed up from time to time. Didn't look great. Of course, it's hard to, like, judge. Like, I mean, was it? I, I'm just 19 now. I have not, like, anything that's, like past 2006 like it's gonna be hard for me to know in detail if unless I've done a full study on it like I've gone really in depth on Moses Malone and Michael Jordan so I can probably talk about what what I've seen from some of them uh I will point out that he made sure to mention post Dolph Shays so like modern players Dolph Shays did coach for the Sixers at some point he was the best player on the Syracuse Nationals team that was the Sixers franchise before they became the Sixers, the title team that won in 1955. And Dolph Shays was an excellent player. His whole career was like tops and like his like rebound numbers were just off the charts for even the guy for that time was known as having a pretty good jump shot. I know it's like fun to make look back on those guys saying like, oh, you know, they're playing with a bunch of plumbers. Like, look at these guys. So funny. And yeah, I mean, basketball's definitely gotten better since then, but like it's still you have to you can only play in the era you live in and he was a really great player so if you're just talking like legacy wise and like what they accomplished for their era if we included Dolph Shays I think he would be number one considering there was no one else on this list who was the best player on a title team like he was uh yeah I mean he's (laughs) obviously of his era he's one of the greatest players of that time he made 12 straight all-star teams I believe um, would I put him above Billy Cunningham? I, That's it's, it's just, an interesting question. I mean, it's really hard to be the best player on a title team in any era. There's just it's a small list, for sure. And, he, um, and he's one of those players. Yeah, I for sure. I don't. I can't. I'm not gonna sit here and argue with anybody <laughs> if they they want to put Chase above Cunningham or vice versa. I think. You know, we have, that's happened 20 to 30 years before I was even born. So I don't feel like I'm really qualified to speak about it. Yeah. Um, we have there, a podcast in 2020, two younger guys debating Billy Cunningham and Dolph Shays. What, what great yeah, content. That's it's Matisse and shake. And then Shays and Cunningham are the two, <laughs> the two head heads up battles we've had so far this podcast. So, oh, yeah. um, yeah, it's, if we're talking, you know, post chase, like the question kind of laid out, then uh, I think the, the tier one is clearly Cunningham and Cheeks, and then Doug Collins is a clear tier two. And then Doc is somewhere in that tier three mm-hmm. with probably him, him and John Lucas. Maybe you want to put Lucas ahead of them. That's that's fine. But yeah, that'd be it for me. John Lucas was great before, like his career kind of fell apart from drug problems. Yeah, I mean, he, that's something that happened to a lot of people in the eighties. Unfortunately, uh, that was the, that was the era that mm-hmm. we lived in, not only as a league, but as a country. So, uh, but he still had a 
13 year career, I believe. And, you know, pretty consistent double digit scorer for a lot of those years. Um, so yeah, great, great player, great career. Um, I feel comfortable with, uh, either him or doc in that tier three, um, number four slot for this, this question's purposes. I looked up some like other coach names just to check of like former Sixers coaches who were players. One was Eddie Jordan, and I do want to just bring up that we need more nicknames like this in the NBA. His nickname was Steady Eddie, according to Basketball Reference, which just, like, bring back rhyming nicknames is all I can say. We got every, like, please, if you can think of any players on the Sixers right now, just rhyme as many rhyming nicknames for them as possible. Like, the more the better. I am in favor of giving basketball players as many nicknames as possible. And just stop it with like the initials just be more creative that's that's all i ask (laughs) you don't like bs for ben simmons is that even a thing no but like i think like i feel like some people probably write it like shorthand yeah that's fine if you're if you're on twitter and you're trying to save characters that's one thing but um i just hate when everyone when there's a young up-and-coming star and they start referring to him as by their initials you're not and, you're not a fan of ad or kd right yeah exactly I like feel, we can we can do better i feel like kd even though he has a lot more nicknames i always thought like kd just was kind of like i don't know it rolled off the tongue nice me i mean he has a lot of other great nicknames like um what was it the two i remember specifically were the slim reaper and durantula they're both great they're corny but that's what a nickname's supposed to be and they are both original and they fit, and I loved both of those. And then I don't care. Uh, I I don't care if it was a little corny. Um, but that's my hope: is that more more creative nicknames, less initials. There was this one great nickname. I I believe I first saw it from the Twitter account Fast Break Breakfast. I, I want to make. I'm not sure if that's their own. I think it was them who tweeted out this random NBA center, Alexei Parashov, who one of his nicknames was the White Hole. And I just was thinking, <laughs> what did you have to do to either deserve or even earn the nickname The White Hole? Like, what happened there? I, did he just never pass? And, <laughs> like, there people that, like, just get the ball in the post and just never pass, they're often referred to as black holes, but he was a white guy, I guess? I don't yeah. know. <laughs> I don't know, like, it's just like, I wouldn't, like, wouldn't put that on my resume, like, I'm the white hole, like... Yeah, that's uh, especially <laughs> this day and age. That seems like a really problematic nickname to it's a, throw it's out there. It's a rough there. beat. It's a rough beat. Uh, yeah. Moving on from white holes, apparently, we are going on to a, a question from my friend Harrison Larner. I know he's a, as he described himself, a casual Atlanta Hawks fan who said, asked me if the Hawks offered Trey Young and their twenty twenty first, which is the sixth overall pick in this draft, for Ben Simmons, who would say no? Uh, you can start on this, Sean, but I'm just saying right away, I would say no to this deal if I'm the Sixers. I think, honestly, everyone would say no. Uh, the Sixers <laughs> would because they're much farther along on the path to contention than Atlanta, and Simmons is a much more accomplished player. And I think his path to being a contributing player, like a like a high-level contributing player in the playoffs is a lot simpler than Trey's Mm -hmm. just because Simmons can be your best defender and then he already 
you know, does a lot of good things offensively. I know we all wish he would shoot more consistently. Um, just in the, in the sense of like take more shots, not even like make shots consistently. Um, and hopefully that changes and he, you know, takes his offensive game to the next level, but that remains to be seen. But he's already shown that he can be a, a very effective and productive player um, against high-level competition on big stages. Trey, you know, who knows whether he'll be able to even be a neutral player on the defensive end. Right now, he's a huge negative in that in that sense. And for him to succeed, he needs to reach the Steph kind of caliber where not only is he a game-changing offensive player in the way he creates gravity and shapes the floor by stretching the defense out and playmaking for others, which he, to his credit, he does a lot of that stuff and he's a tremendous offensive player already. Um, But defensively, he's got to get to the Steph point where he at least is competitive and tries hard on that end and is a guy that you can at least be comfortable with in his role defensively and that teams opposing teams won't be able to pick on him every time down the court and trace nowhere near that at this point. So uh, on the flip side though, I think Atlanta views Trey, you know, he's a younger asset. It's a lot easier to shape a roster around him, I would say than it is Ben. And uh, I think just where they are in their franchise trajectory, that's, he's kind of a better fit, for them at this moment in time. So I don't think, and he's off, he's on a rookie deal still, whereas Ben is on his second contract and making a lot more money. So that gives them flexibility to improve their team uh, where, where Ben wouldn't in, in salary cap sense. So um, I, I think both, both sides would say no, honestly. Yeah. That's the conclusion I came to as well. You, I agreed with pretty much all you said about Trey and, like, defensively, like you mentioned, the common thing when we say small guards have to reach a certain level is, like, Steph Curry, because he's proven, like, he can be either the best or second best player on a championship team, despite being what we consider a small guy. But, like, people need to understand, like, Trey is, like, my height. He's, like, 5'11". Steph is, like, a legit 6'2 or 6'3". Steph has a little more strength to him. And, like, I don't... I remember it was back in the 2016 season, the second MVP, or people were, there was the report, like, Steph, like, is, had one of the highest deadlifts on the entire team for the Warriors, like, he's actually, like, they all said, yeah, Steph is, like, underrated in how, in terms of how strong he is, he is not a weak guy, and I think we've seen that in these playoffs, too, is just, like, you don't need to be an incredible defender, but, like, it's the difference between Tyler Hero and Kemba Walker, like, in that Miami Heat Boston Celtics series, where, Hero, despite not being a very good defender, and he's had more trouble in the this Lakers series, the fact that he's six five and has some like little bulk to him, like it's just it's hard to score over a six five guy sometimes. He just kind of is in the way. Whereas Kemba, like at five ten to five eleven, can do everything right, and it doesn't matter all the time because he's really short and doesn't have a lot to like push back against people. So you can kind of score over him when you need to. So. I would definitely need to see that first. Like, Trey is one of the worst defenders in the NBA. If I was even going to consider for the Sixers, I would at least need to see that he's not a complete liability. But also, the sixth, because the other part of this trade would be the Sixers getting the sixth pick in this draft. I, I've said it a lot of times, this is not a very good draft class. I don't think, 
the addition of a, the sixth pick in this draft is enough to make up for the gap between how I value Ben and Trey. Like, you're, if at that range, you're looking at maybe Isaac Okoro or Denny Avdia if they last. You're... I, I mean, I don't know. It's such... It's so hard to project where everyone's going to go in this draft because people are so up and down about who ranks where. Like, really the only guy that would get me excited if I'm the Sixers, if he was still there at six, like, to put on, on the team would be Killian Hayes, like, point guard from France, taller guy, really good point of attack defender. His shot, his shot hasn't come around yet, but he has a lot of good shooting indicators, like free throw percentage, some mid-range stuff, got decent form, has incredible footwork, good passer. Like, he's one of my favorite prospects in this whole draft. I would like him, but, like, other than that, just... Like, this isn't like... Like, next year's draft class would actually intrigue me more because I know the 2021 class is loaded with talent in the, at the top of its, like, in its top 10. That would get me more excited, but... Like, yeah, that's why. And I, I think you're right, too, about how the Hawks themselves are probably thinking, like, Hawks fans are probably thinking Trey's such a better player than Ben. He scores so many more points per game. Why would we give up Trey for Ben? Like, I think Especially that's... given every time the Sixers have played Trey, he seems to go off against us. That's, so I feel like that's, and, and... <laughs> that's part of the Just Sixers because... always struggling against smaller, quick guards, and also part of the Sixers seem like they purposely saved their worst effort nights for the Hawks. Yeah, so so a Hawks fan, every time you've watched your team play the Sixers, Trey is like has this amazing game, and it's like, why? Well, I, I've seen Trey versus Ben. Why would I do this? I would, that doesn't make any sense. Um, but uh, yeah, but to my point earlier, I just for all the reasons I laid out, I don't even think that it would make sense for the Hawks to do that necessarily. I think at this point they gotta continue going on the path they've laid out and just hope that. Trey can improve marginally in, in those areas that we mentioned. The only like three positive Sixers versus Hawks moments I have from the last few years is Markel Fultz absolutely destroying that one guy on a fast break dunk, Embiid dunking over Collins, and then Embiid hitting the two foul shots to win the close game against the Hawks. I don't know if you remember all those three. Like, do you remember that Markel dunk? Where, was that his triple double game, or was no, that, a that that was dunk? that was the last game of the the twenty eighteen season against the Bucks, where the Bucks purposely tanked it to keep their first rounder. Okay, and that's when Markel got the triple double. But this was when like Markel got a steal. He did his classic thing where you know like he goes up like kind of Statue of Liberty with one two, and then puts a second hand on the ball and kind of like dunks it. Do you know what I'm saying? Like he goes up like he's palming the ball like really emphatically. And then he puts a second hand on the ball and dunks it with two hands. And, like, a guy, a, I think it was a guard on the Hawks, like, after he turned it over, got in the way. And Markel, like, completely, like, landed on his back. He just destroyed him on the dunk. Do you think that was the moment the front office decided they needed to trade him for Jonathan Simmons? <laughs> they bookmarked the play. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> you saw that tweet like a was it Jonathan Simmons tweeted when Brett Brown got fired, thank goodness they got him out of there. Like what is like I understand Brett didn't play Jonathan Simmons mainly because Jonathan Simmons was bad when he was with the Sixers, but still, like geez. Played more than he did in Orlando by the time Orlando traded him. Yeah. Like he wasn't really seeing the floor with Orlando. So and, and I remember he how at least started he, playing once he came here. It's a it is a reminder that maybe just because a guy was great with the Spurs and really interesting, like, does not mean he will be great everywhere else. Like cuz clearly Which 
Jonathan Simmons, great story. Like he was one of those guys that oh, yeah. came to like a G, a G League tryout, mm-hmm. like paid, paid his own money to go to a G League tryout and like made his way into the league and then eventually signed a contract to make millions of dollars. So awesome story. But yeah, like Brett was not wrong in not playing Jonathan Simmons. He, he did not have the fortitude of a TJ McConnell or Robert Covington to keep up his to keep up that stature once he became an undrafted guy who got a contract. Yep. Um, we are, und- so, we are undrafted production factory. I don't know what that. <laughs> we're, um, we're, uh, we're a multi-threat center slash undrafted player factory. Yes. All right. Moving on to another question here. We got this one from Drew shot. Bradley Beal has been mentioned in possible trade talks of teams such as the Brooklyn Nets. Would the Sixers even consider this move? They would definitely consider a trade. Like, they're definitely considering a lot of trades right now. And they, I mean, I would want Bradley Beal. I mean, I think I did mention it on our podcast with Dave Early over a month ago where if the Sixers were trading for Bradley Beal, do I get to call Brad's agent and ask him if he'll be playing defense again this year? That, that again, that would matter to me. But, I mean, Bradley Beal's a great player, fantastic offensive player. But, like, it's a, it's a eternal problem of the Sixers. We you can't really make any huge moves without trading Ben or Joel, and I don't think the Wizards are that interested unless you give them one of them. Right. Yeah, um Sixers would definitely be interested in having a conversation. And yeah, we don't have to rehash this cuz we did talk about this you know a while back with Dave on the pod and I I said if there was like I, I'm against trading Joel or Ben, but if there was a trade to be made and you had to trade one of those guys, um, then Bradley Beal would be a guy they could get and I would not feel like the sky was falling. And he's young still. He's a top 20-ish player in the league and he fits alongside either Ben or Joel much better than Joel and Ben fit together. So if I think suddenly your top two stars would fit much better. Mm. So that's something to consider. And just, uh, you know, I wouldn't hang up the phone. And if there was a deal to be made around trading away Joel and Beal was the guy they got back as the centerpiece and they got some other stuff too, then I don't know. I, I wouldn't do it, but I would not like abandon my fandom. Um, in that situation, so what? What, yeah, tra- so- what trade would make you abandon your fandom? I don't know. At this point, <laughs> I guess nothing. If, the, yeah, if we haven't, le- if we haven't left, if we haven't reached it by this point, um, yeah. If we've, been, it's been, it's been a long road. I don't know. Like bringing back Colangelo, maybe <laughs> that might do it. <laughs> Maybe. saying he was the guy that positioned them for greatness and then <laughs> he was a, a, a media schmear campaign against him because his wife made some bad decisions uh they were they were forced to let him go but he's the guy that's going to put it all together uh that, that might do it i don't know um yeah it's hard to hard to think of anything realistic where i actually would but uh that's just the nature of fandom it's uh there's nothing rational about it random thought here because as Eagles fans, I know we've always been very upset with the fact that the Eagles drafted J.J. Ortega-Whiteside over D.K. Metcalf. 
Jay, I, I believe Jay Jaw is kind of tall. What should they should we move Ortega Whiteside to the basketball court of the Sixers? But will his skills better be accentuated in that system? And maybe we could even give like, I don't know, we could give the Eagles like. Do you think Matisse could run like an out route? He's got long well, arms. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not trading the Matisse. Ah, who who could we give them then? <laughs> maybe could Al play tight end? There you go. He he. I mean, they they they're they're they got a lot of offensive line injuries. Maybe Al could oh. play some O line. The offensive line injuries are. Oh my gosh, it's so bad. Yeah, but uh, would Ortega Whiteside be better suited in the basketball court? I mean, he's he's done basically zero on the NFL field, so it can't be worse. Like, at least give him a shot. He's got he's got what like ten career receptions, something like that. So. So you say it can't be worse, but the lesson of being a Philadelphia sports fan is that it can always get worse. It there's no it can't be worse. It, it there it will only get worse from there. I mean, we're talking about our there. I go down because they they are they are technically atop the standings in the division. I mean, yeah, technically division leaders. But it is so weird that the NFC East has been like, and it's always like. The Eagles won the division at thirteen and three the one year. The Cowboys were twelve and four like a few years ago. But the division winner like every year is like nine and seven or ten and six. It is like never a great team coming out of the NFC East. It's such a weird division. Yeah, ever. I mean, there have been years where the Eagles were very good and they were the division winners. No, yeah, a few years has, has been has been a little weird. Hmm. All right, we got one last question here. Uh, it's a little bit of a funny one, but from my friend John Volka, uh, Seattle Homer, who basically has told me ever since the Sonics left when he was very young, did not <laughs> does not show much interest in the NBA. Would the Sixers be open to a move to Seattle and a name change to the SuperSonics? I would not be open to it. Honestly, don't know if Josh Harris would not be open to it. He was certainly open to a move to camden across the water but i i do know matisse loves seattle supersonics gear he rocked that sweatshirt in a lot of his vlogs uh washington native i believe and i mean i i'm personally in favor of the nba putting another team back in seattle uh seattle is i believe and should be first in line to get a team back in the they deserve it i i don't I mean, obviously, it's a Sixers fan. I don't want them to leave. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I feel that. Well, that's going to wrap it up for us today. Uh, thank you to everyone who submitted a mailbag question. It's much appreciated. Hope by next time, this time next week, we'll probably be talking about the NBA offseason as it finally comes to us after all these weeks in the NBA bubble, likely with an NBA champion, Los Angeles Lakers, but you never know. And yeah, just thank you all for listening. And Sean, I'll talk to you next week. Until then, uh, I'll talk to you later.